Thank you. Good morning, all. Well, it's hard to believe, but we're only two weeks away from Easter. Amazing. And with that in mind, we've gone into a series, if you're a guest, called Easter, an old story with a new twist. We're revisiting the Easter story because we, we want to not just arrive at Easter and all of a sudden it's here and all of a sudden we have this big day of, of energy and this big day of excitement and then the next day it's over. You know, we, we, we've been trying to enter into the Easter celebration prayerfully, reflectively, and taking stock of our lives and where we need to make course corrections. The, the new twist is that we're, we're looking at Easter through the eyes of Jesus. Normally, we look at Easter through our eyes and our impressions, and we'll continue to do so, but we wanted to really look at Jesus' experience from his perspective and what he must have been dealing with and processing beyond just what we normally attribute to Easter. We, we looked first at the soldiers who had crucified him, ignoring him, dying on the cross right above him. Well, he's dying on the cross. They're gambling for his clothes right here, right at the foot of the cross. They were missing it. That the greatest event in the history of humanity was happening right above them as the Savior of the world was dying on the cross for the sins of all humanity. And they were gambling. I can't even imagine what Jesus must have been thinking, except that it was immediately in Scripture after documenting what they were doing, that Jesus' first words were spoken on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But even with this, this didn't take Jesus by surprise. In the Old Testament, Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, Scripture says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus, of course, knew Scripture. He was the author of Scripture. All Scripture was given by inspiration, and Jesus was as much God as he was man. And so Jesus knew about Psalm 22. You know, what's amazing thing that some of you may not realize is this psalm was written about 600 B.C., it was written 600 years before Jesus was born. It was written 100 years before the Roman Republic took formation. Crucifixion by Rome wasn't even in existence yet. Demonstrates the divine inspiration of Scripture. But Jesus knew Scripture. He knew that that was going to happen. We looked last week at the fact that his people rejected him. He who had done miracles among them, he who had raised the dead back to life, who gave sight to the blind and speech to the mute and hearing to the deaf. For three years, those who were just five days earlier as he entered in Jerusalem were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, were screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I can't imagine the pain of hearing that. 
as his own people scream, not just for his death, but death by the most painful medium of execution ever devised by a human being. But again, didn't take him by surprise. Several places in scripture, one being Matthew 16, 21. Scripture reads, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If you read the book of Mark in its entirety, and I encourage you to do that one time, just sit down and read the gospel of Mark. It's a, it's a pretty short gospel. And you'll see how often Jesus repeated this. He, he taught his disciples very early on. He taught his disciples about what was going to happen. It wasn't that he didn't tell them they weren't listening. That's why they weren't at the tomb, ready for his resurrection on the third day. Both events must have caused Jesus great emotional pain. And, of course, his physical pain is unimaginable. And yet, I don't believe either of those events caused his greatest pain. Jesus was ignored by the soldiers who were gambling for his garments. He was rejected by his own people. And as much as that must have hurt and been emotionally scarring, he was also abandoned by his friends. We see in that video clip that we just looked, him celebrating his last Passover with his inner circle, the 12. This was probably the third Passover that he celebrated with them, being that his ministry lasted three years. But this was the most intimate of all the Passovers. Jesus knew what was about to happen that very night. And he poured out his heart he bared his soul with his disciples as he broke bread and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. As he passed the cup and he said, this is the, the new covenant in my blood. We revisit that scene in Matthew 26 verse 20. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord, surely not I, Lord, not me, it can't be me. And Judas, the one who would betray him said, surely not I, Rabbi, and Jesus answered, yes, it is you. See, Jesus knew that the deal was already done. He knew what Judas had already done, as recorded in Mark 14, verse 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity 
to hand him over, and that opportunity came quickly. Judas abandoned Jesus because of greed and disillusionment. See, right before Jesus went to the chief priests, Matthew records an event where a young woman came to Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus was reclining at another time in a, in a house e- eating bread, and she broke an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and poured it over his head. And it says that the disciples, they, they, they were just upset by this, saying, this is so expensive, this could have been sold and fed people. Well, history records that Judas was the treasurer of the 12. He was the one who carried the bag. And it was this event that put him over the top. See, Judas, like like the people who would soon yell crucify him, became disillusioned. He expected Jesus to be a conqueror. He expected the Messiah to catapult Israel into world dominance. And when he saw that that wasn't gonna happen and Jesus wasn't even suggesting that, he became disillusioned. Because he was greedy, he decided to make a profit by betraying Jesus. Matthew goes on in verse 26 of chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The intimacy of that. Jesus saying, this is it, guys. What I've been teaching you for all these three years, the time has come. After observing this, Scripture says that they sung a hymn. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. There, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. That would be James and John. Then he said to them, Matthew 26, 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus said, my soul, not not, not I'm feeling down, I'm a little discouraged. He said, my soul, my innermost being is overwhelmed. He's emotionally flooded at this point. He says, to the point of death, I'm about to die. It's overtaking me, it's overwhelming me. He said, you, my friends, sit here with me and keep watch. We know that Jesus went a little further and that's when he got on his knees before God and he prayed fervently, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. We know after he did, he came back to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He said, could you not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And we know this repeated it 
three times. After this, he went back and he began to pray again, that same prayer. And he came to the same conclusion, nevertheless, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. And after the second time, he comes back and the disciples are sleeping again. And Jesus goes back and he prays a third time. And scripture says that his emotional trauma was so great that he was sweating blood. The medical community tells us that is indeed possible when a human being is under extreme, extraordinary stress. Well, we know what happens. The third time he comes back and they're sleeping, all of a sudden they're aroused by a commotion going on around them. And Judas comes forward and he kisses Jesus on the cheek which was the prearranged sign to the soldiers who were with them from Caiaphas, the chief priest, that this is the one they were there to arrest. This is the one they were there to take. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 55, at that time Jesus said to the crowd, it's, it's, it's a large group. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? He said, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me there. But this has taken place that the writings of the prophet might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. In his most, the hour of his most critical need, at the moment of his life when, when he needed them more than he had ever needed them. They deserted him. They abandoned him. Out of fatigue. See, they were supposed to be watching. They were supposed to be ready. They were supposed to be waiting and watching for him. But instead, their fatigue overcame them and they fell asleep. And even Peter, James, and John, knowing that Jesus said, I'm overwhelmed, I'm at the point of death here, you would think that would keep them alert. They fell asleep. Then they fled because of fear for their own lives. All but one. Matthew continues in Matthew 26, 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Said Peter was the only one that didn't outright desert him, that didn't outright flee Peter kind of did the private eye thing. He, he kept at a distance, but he followed them to see what was going to happen. And it says, he followed them up to the point where he got into the, the, the courtyard of the high priest's residence, Caiaphas. And we know the story, Matthew 26, 69. Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a young servant girl came to him. You, you, you were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. 
And you know, a short while later, another young girl came up and said, no, 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 you, you were one of them. And he said, I'm telling you, I don't know that man. Finally, a third time, verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call curses down on himself and swore to them. Remember, Peter, before a disciple, was what? He was a fisherman. You ever hear the phrase, curse like a sailor? Well, Peter reverted back to his sailor days, and he began to let it go, calling curses down on himself and swore to them, blankety, 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 blank, blank. I don't know that man. Luke 22 Verse 61 records that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. That's how close Peter was. When he was cursing and screaming that he didn't know that guy, Jesus turned and stared at him, looked directly in his eyes. said, then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him, and he went out and wept bitterly. Remember when Jesus one last time was telling him what was going to happen, Peter said, if everyone else flees you, I'll be with you. I'll never forsake you, God. And Jesus said, tonight, before the rooster crows, three times you'll deny me. And that's exactly what happened. And again, Jesus understood it was going to happen. But I've thought about this passage many times and I've wept over this passage many times because my name is Peter. And I identified with Peter. And that look that Jesus must have given him. I don't believe at all it was a look of judgment. I believe it was a look of pain but it was a look of pain coupled with compassion. Peter, out of his arrogance, thinking he was better than the other disciples, that he was more true, he was more loyal, he was more faithful. What does scripture say about pride? It says pride comes before a what? A fall, and Peter experienced that Old Testament reality in a very dramatic and personal way. And it was his human need for self-preservation. He saw things weren't going well. And immediately his human instincts kicked in over his devotion to Jesus and he denied Christ vehemently. And he too fled. John 19, verse 25, we see Jesus on the cross now. He's been nailed to the cross and says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. To the disciple, here is your mother. Now, that disciple whom Jesus loved is John. John refers to himself that way in his own gospel as the one who loved Jesus and the one that Jesus loved. He was the youngest of the disciples. And so there, as as Jesus hung on that cross in shame, and the other scripture says, as, as the crowds were gloating and casting insults at him, the only people there was his mom, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Clophus, and one, count it, one disciple. But even that changed. Because John's gospel is the only one that has has them right there at the cross, in earshot, so that they could hear what Jesus said from the cross. The other gospels record that many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Apparently, at some point, this intimate group standing there with Jesus at the cross was driven away. And so now, even though their hearts are with him, they're not physically with him, and now they're having to watch all of this unfold from a distance, and Jesus is finally left alone, abandoned to his suffering. His friends abandoned him. They deserted him. As I try to see each of those events unfold through the eyes of Jesus, it's not a wonder he went to the garden saying, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Judas abandoned him because of his greed and his disillusionment. Scripture kind of gives us a a little deeper insight into that because it says that Satan came and visited Judas and he tempted him to take this course of action. And so 2,000 years later, we need to remember that. See, Scripture warns us, Paul speaks to Timothy, his preacher apprentice, In his first letter to Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know what? People are still abandoning Jesus for money, for greed. Now, their heart may not be as malicious as the heart of Judas was, but the end result is the same. In their pursuit of materialism, in their pursuit of wealth, Jesus takes a second, a third, maybe a fourth place in their life. And for all practical purposes, he's abandoned in the pursuit of wealth. But the end result of that, by the way, if we're tempted to do that, and Satan will tempt us to do that, is our own disillusionment. 
That's what scripture says. They pierce themselves with many griefs because you know what? Money can't buy you love. Hebrews 10.36 says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. See, sometimes it's hard not to abandon the cause of Christ. But scripture reminds us that, that we gotta keep our eye on the prize. See, this world, this life is not gonna be a bed of roses. We know that. And the longer that we have been believers and Christ followers, we understand that even Christ followers suffer. But we gotta keep our eye on the prize. See, our relationship with Jesus is not only about this world. It is much more about the world to come. And one day, Jesus is going to make it all right. He's going to make it worth every sacrifice, every moment of suffering we've ever had to endure. His disciples abandoned him because of fatigue and fear. Hebrews 12, 13 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Again, Scripture is so honest with us. You know, if the Bible was made by a bunch of charlatans and written to try to, they sure put things in that are contrary to what people want to hear. This is not the message we want to hear. But it's a promise that we have. Galatians 6, 9 says it this way, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest Read it with me. If we do not give up. See? I love that. I love that God promises us that the rewards that he one day is going to give us far outweigh the sacrifices of our time and money and talents that we expend in this life. So this is don't grow weary. And I, and I hear two messages in that phrase. The one that really is probably the most in context for that verse is that don't stop doing what we need to be doing. Don't stop preparing for eternity because it's in the end. It's, it's when this life passes. It's when this Jesus returns and, and a new heaven is built and a new Jerusalem comes down. That's when we enjoy our eternal reward. But I also see in that phrase a warning. And, and you've heard me as your pastor give you this warning before. Sometimes we can get involved in too many things. I, I, I'm amazed by the degree of dedication so many of our bridge members have. I, I, I get here on Sunday morning between 6.15 and 6.30 in the morning. And I'm not the first one here. Carlton's always here. Madrano's always here. Stanley's always here. And our deacons are, are, are here. And they come. And they sacrifice week after week. And that's after they've been here on Saturday morning putting up chairs with some of you that I know volunteer in that ministry. And it's all good. But be careful. Even in ministry, even in volunteering at the church, you need to be careful not to overwhelm yourself, because if you do, you're going to burn out. And that's what Scripture is warning us against also. 
First Peter 3.12 says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? See, disciples fled because of fear. Sometimes it gets scary serving Jesus even today. I get over on the university campuses as I'm taking classes, and it's a scary place sometimes with the culture and the postmodernism philosophy that I run into all the time. And it's sometimes when things come up that, that I have to speak out against, there's a little voice in the back of my head, and it's not the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, just keep quiet. Don't cause a scene. Don't stir up anything. Scripture reminds me, who's going to hurt me if I'm eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set Christ apart as Lord. Sometimes to my amazement, when I have spoken up, you know what? I have never, ever suffered to any degree of real discomfort. In fact, you know what I've experienced more and more? On that campus, when I have the boldness to speak out for the cause of Jesus Christ, it emboldens other believers who are in that classroom, and they start speaking out. See, see we're on the winning side. Say this, I am a winner. You're a winner. You're not a loser. You're not second rate. You're on the winning side. The battle's still going on, but in the end, we're going to wave the victor's crown. We're the winners. Don't be afraid. Don't be weary in doing the things that Jesus asks us to do. Peter was out of arrogance and self-preservation. I love Paul. Paul is, is a hero to, to many of us. That persecutor of Christianity under the name Saul, who came to faith in Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. I don't know of any believer at any point in history that sacrificed more for the cause of Jesus Christ, who was more bold in proclaiming the cross in the gospel story than Paul. And yet Paul wasn't like Peter. He wasn't impulsive. He wasn't arrogant. Paul says of himself, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Paul says, you know what? When it's all said and done, after everything I've been through, after even meeting Christ face to face, I still don't get it right all the time. I'm still working this Christianity thing out. I'm still working this journey out. Can't you relate to what Paul says? I can. I can relate to it. He goes on to say, that's true of all of us. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, oh, now listen now, listen. Because a lot of us need to hear this right now. Listen. Forgetting what is behind. 
See, one of the reasons that we abandon Jesus sometimes is because of all the mistakes that we've made. And we allow Satan to keep that right here at the forefront of our minds. And, and, and we, we process and we revisit the story over and over again of our failures. And I've prayed and you've prayed. How many times I've prayed to God, God, forgive me for the mess-ups of my life. I wish I could have so many do-overs, don't you? Paul says, now I don't have this thing down yet, but here's one thing I can tell you. You gotta forget the past because you can't change the past. And he goes on and says, forgetting what behind and straining towards what is ahead. Hey, you know what, I got today. That's really all I know I have is today. And I don't know if I have all of today. So I wanna use today in everything I do and everywhere I go to bring glory to Jesus Christ. How about you, amen? As we approach Easter, a time of year when people are going to flood the churches, we'll be packed out. I, I want to shine for Jesus. I want to be one who invites people to come. It says, I press on, straining towards what is head. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And it's not just Paul. We say, yeah, but that was Paul. I mean, Paul, Paul the Apostle, Paul, come on. It's for all of us. Because we're all Apostle Pauls. We're all sinners who one day were visited by the Holy Spirit. Who were privileged to hear the story of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. We're all the Apostle Paul. And just like the Apostle Paul, we're all still working on it. But the message is that we don't have to abandon Jesus. Especially as we lead into this, this very, very special time of year. Let's not get preoccupied with everything else. Let's stay true. This morning, we're going to revisit that video scene. Jesus in the upper room, experiencing a moment of extreme intimacy with those who he called friends. And you know what? He calls us friend today. And as we partake of the symbols that represent his body and blood, Let's each process and take a moment in our own hearts, in our own space, and recommit ourselves to the person and the cause of our Savior. Our deacons, our ushers are coming forward with the communion plates. As they approach you, I'm gonna encourage you first to take one of the pieces of bread Put it in your lap and then take a cup and pass the tray to your neighbor. Now, as we're receiving, let me ask you to consider one other thing. As painful as being abandoned by his friends was, their abandonment, I am quite sure, did not constitute Jesus' greatest pain. I think his greatest pain 
was experienced on the cross, and I'm not talking about the physical pain. I'm not talking about the emotional pain of looking down and seeing the soldiers gambling for his clothes. I'm not talking about the remembrance of him being, being be, betrayed and rejected by his own people. I'm not just talking about the fact that as he looked down there, his disciples weren't there and even his mom and Mary Magdalene were driven away from the cross. His greatest pain wasn't physical. His greatest pain wasn't emotional. His greatest pain was spiritual. Scripture records in Matthew 27, verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Said he cried out. He didn't whisper it. With whatever energy he had left, he screamed it out. See, because it was in that moment that all the sins of humanity since Adam and Eve came crushing down on him. He was the atoning sacrifice for sin. And we know that scripture teaches us that God can have no fellowship with sin. And that reality cannot be portrayed in a more stark manner than God having to turn his back on his own son as he became sin for all of us. I believe with all my heart that was his most painful moment. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, see? It's not that we love God. I want to love God. I want to try to love him more than I ever have before, but it's not about me. It's about God. It's about God's love for me. It's about God's love for you. He loved us so much that he allowed Jesus to endure all of that. John three sixteen. In response to that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. Does that mean we won't die a physical death? No, that's not what it means. It's talking about something far more important than my physical experience right now. It's talking about my eternal experience, talking about your eternal experience. God says, listen, here's all I'm looking for. All I'm looking for is yet you believe me that you have faith that my son was not just another prophet, was not just a great teacher, was not just a role model citizen, that he was indeed God in the flesh of man, dying on the cross for your sins. If you'll believe that, I'll give you eternal life. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus rose from the dead, and 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven. And scripture reminds us that when he got to heaven, what he did is he sat down at the right hand of God, the place of favor. And what he's done ever since has interceded for, for you and for me.
That's what he does all day long. He intercedes for us. Because through our faith, we are one of his. John 1.12 says, Yet to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I wonder, are you a child of God? Not are you a religious person, not are you a Christian. I'm saying, are you a child of God? Have you put your faith in him? Have you established that intimate relationship? Well, it's a one-time happening. Paul says it in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Before we observe our elements, let's just bow our heads for a moment. If you've not done that, why don't you do it right now? In a simple prayer of faith, something like this, and you can use these words if you want to. They're nothing special. I'm making them up. It's not an incantation. But in simple words, just say, God, I confess with my mouth right now, Jesus is Lord. I get it. He's the only way. There's no other way. He's the one you sent to die on the cross to pay the price of sin. And God, I believe everything that Scripture reveals about him that you've inspired men to record that Jesus died and was buried and on the third day rose to life. And I believe you have given him alone the authority to forgive my sin. And Jesus, I'm asking you to do that right now. Jesus, forgive my sin. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Look up at me. 1 John 5, 13 says this. These things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And the reason we know that is because of the extent that Jesus went to to provide it. Let's return to the upper room with him that night. When Jesus took bread and broke it, and after giving thanks, he passed it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. After the same manner, Jesus took the cup, and he said, take it, drink it, every one of you. For this is the new covenant in my, in my blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Take this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And once again, Paul reminds us later in 1 Corinthians 11, that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, let, let's do that, right? Let's be proclaimers of the Lord's death. Let's be proclaimers of the Lord's resurrection. Let's be proclaimers of the salvation that God gives as a gift to every man and every woman. Let's invite people to come. Let's get folks out here with us. Let's pack this place out on Easter so that men and women, boys and girls, can know how much God loves them. Our ushers are coming. We're going to receive our morning gifts. I commend you again for the, the faithfulness that you have. And because your faithfulness, we're, we're ahead of budget for the year. And wow, what we can do together if we'll serve and give and love the world through the eyes of Jesus. If you don't have time to prepare your gift, before the offering plate passes you, we have offering kiosk at all the exits. And remember, also, you can give on your cell phone. There's in your bulletin a place text to give. Let's go ahead and pass the gifts. Well, next week, 
Lord willing, we're going to take another look at an old story with a new twist. And I am so excited to share this one with you because I think it is going to be so encouraging to you and so exciting to you. Lord willing, I'll be back to teach it. Lord willing, you'll be back to feed on it. But right now, let's stand and let's praise him one more time with all our